Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. So back in week one, we made a big deal about the heavy metal material throughout the book of Ezekiel. And that was certainly on display when we talked about God as just judge. But then in weeks two and three, when we focused on God's holiness and God's faithfulness, it may have seemed like the intensity was ratcheted down a little bit. You may have even found yourself thinking that Ezekiel isn't that challenging after all. Well, that might change today. Because this morning we'll read Ezekiel 16, discussing God's grace. And you may find yourself wanting to run for the exits the way our children do when they're dismissed. One commentator refers to this controversial chapter as brutally explicit. Another notes that it contains graphic imagination and violent force. Preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, a minister can scarcely read it in public. But what's so heavy metal about God's grace? I mean, with the way that we Christians talk about grace today, it sounds more like pop or elevator music. Well, what makes Ezekiel's presentation of God's grace so jarring is the attention that he pays to the other side of the coin. The thing that makes God's grace necessary to begin with, and that's humanity's sin. In chapter 16, Ezekiel paints a disturbing picture of sin. In fact, it's so shocking that it ought to give us a deeper appreciation for God's grace. So open up to Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 1. Feel free to use our Bibles if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we go further, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to be in your word. I pray that you would speak to us through all of your word, not just the portions that we know well, not just the portions that are engraved on our Bible covers and our coffee cups, but that we would look to every single part of your word as profitable, as the Apostle Paul tells us, for us as believers. I pray that we would come to your word humbly, that we would approach your word not with the temptation to judge it, but rather to let it judge and search and convict us. So I pray that we would approach your word with humility this morning. And I pray that we would approach you with humility, uh, that we would remember what we've talked about the past few weeks, that you are just judge, that you are holy beyond what we can fully grasp. And that as we said last week, you are faithful to your word, faithful to your character, and faithful to your people. And Lord, that ought to give us a healthy sense of fear and trembling as we come into your presence. But at the same time, we can approach you with confidence, not because of anything inherent within us, but because of who Christ is and what Christ has done. And so, Lord, even though we come to you with humility, we come to you with joy and confidence, knowing that While you are our Lord and we are your servants, 
you are also our father and we are your children. Thank you for that great privilege that we have not just this morning, not just when we're here in this building, not just when we pray, but every moment of every day. We who believe in your son, Jesus Christ, are your children. Our sins are forgiven. And for that, we thank you. Again, thank you for this morning, this time we have together as brothers and sisters in your word. I pray that you would guide us, protect us, help our worship be honoring to you today. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, before we read this uncomfortable chapter, let's remind ourselves again of Ezekiel's historical context. The nation of Israel, even more specifically God's people in the southern kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem is the capital, those people have fallen into sin. They are a rebellious house, full of every kind of wickedness you can imagine. From the small to the great of society. And Ezekiel's job is to warn God's people of God's coming judgment. Namely, the destruction of the temple, the ransacking of Jerusalem, and the people's forced exile to Babylon. But to help Ezekiel, and help the people, and help us really understand The horrors of sin. God tells a dramatic and tragic story. It starts in chapter 16, verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem. Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. If you're curious about why you would rub your newborn baby with salt, That was something that happened in the ancient world, presumably for hygienic purposes. It can still happen sometimes today. Verse 5. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field, for you were aboard on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood... I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown. Yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. That's all marriage language in verse 8. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. 
And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose. There's your biblical justification for nose rings and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. So as the story begins, we learn that Jerusalem wasn't always the glorious city of God that we think of in the Bible. It was once a pagan town like any other in the ancient world. That is, until God graciously intervened and gave it to the children of Abraham. God compares Jerusalem before he found it to a baby girl discarded in the wilderness. Sadly, that was an all too common phenomenon in the ancient world. Whether a mother didn't feel she could support a child, simply didn't want it because of the inconvenience, or determined that the baby wasn't worth keeping due to a birth defect. As you might imagine, abortion procedures in the ancient world were extremely unsafe. So many mothers would wait until their unwanted baby was born and then leave it somewhere to die. And if someone did find that baby before it died, there was no guarantee that they would help. And if they did, they might help for the wrong reasons. The baby might be saved to be sold as a slave one day or maybe forced into prostitution. But God gave this helpless baby, his people, life. He cleaned them, adopted them, provided for them, and extravagantly blessed them. When they had nothing to offer, God showed them grace. So how would they respond to God's grace? Verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them, and set my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey, you set before them for a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. 
Were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. And after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. You built yourself a vaunted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. You also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you and diminished your allotted portion and delivered you to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines, who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. You played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Yes, you played the whore with them and still you were not satisfied. You multiplied your whoring also with the trading land of Chaldea a.k.a. Babylon. And even with this, you were not satisfied. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaunted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. Yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. Adulterous wife, Remember verse 8, it was marriage language. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment, while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. So how did God's people respond to his abundant grace? They forgot it. They forgot where they came from. They forgot who they were. They forgot what God had done for them. They forgot the God who saved them. Verse 15 sums it up. You trusted in your beauty. You trusted in your beauty. The people started to believe their own hype. They became arrogant. After all God had given them, they felt they were entitled to whatever they wanted without consequence. And in a cruel and unjust irony... God's people took the blessings that God gave them and used them for evil. In the verses that we just read, Israel's sin takes three primary forms. First, they make and they worship images. The Old Testament refers to that as idolatry. Worshiping that anything that isn't God. It's a clear and egregious violation of both the first and second Of the Ten Commandments. Next, they sacrificed their children 
in worship to those idols. At the risk of sounding a little too on the nose, given some of our nation's events over the past few weeks and adding to some of what Joshua mentioned earlier, I'll simply note that today we've already seen an image of God's kindness to a baby whose parents didn't want it and God's condemnation of child sacrifice. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And third, God's people gave their devotion to other nations. Rather than the God who called them to be different from those nations. When Israel heard of God's coming judgment, rather than repenting of their sin and asking him for help, they foolishly turned to countries like Egypt for assistance. But the sin doesn't stop there. That repeated reference to Israel building lofty places out in public. They bragged about their sin. They weren't ashamed of their sin. They made it public. They wanted the whole world to know. And they didn't resort to this metaphorical prostitution out of necessity or out of desperation. They loved it. They chose it. They pursued it. They didn't receive payment. They paid others. As we read in verse 30, their hearts were sick. And as we've seen already, God's judgment would one day come. That judgment is summed up in verses 35 through 43, where all of Israel's sins would come back to bite them once and for all. God would give them what they wanted, and it wouldn't be pretty. God is gracious. There's no doubt about that. But sinners can refuse it. The way Israel did in Ezekiel 16. And when that occurs, well, if you make your bed, you lie in it. We read in verses 44 through 58 that Judah's sin made the sins of others look like child's play. At this point, even Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities God justly destroyed in Genesis 19, look good compared to Jerusalem. There will be consequences to Israel's actions. Destruction, shame, death. And it's all because they forgot God's grace. So, you can probably see why this passage is rarely preached, taught, or even read. Not every preacher is as comfortable as I am using the word whore. I'm just kidding, I'm not comfortable using it. It's disturbing, it's graphic, it's even offensive. You can't totally blame people for reading this chapter once in their Bible reading plan and then never coming back to it again. So why is this passage even here? Does it have any value or purpose other than simply to shock us? 
Can Ezekiel 16 really be an inspired part of God's word, which the Apostle Paul says is profitable for believers in Jesus? Well, in many ways, the primary purpose of Ezekiel 16 is to remind us of the seriousness of sin. In some ways, it exists for the same reason that you can still visit a World War II concentration camp. Those sites don't remain open for the sake of entertainment or spectacle, tourism, or even mere education. They remain open because to this day, humanity still needs to see how horrific and devastating and depraved the Holocaust was. Humanity needs to know how capable we are of committing atrocities that can make our skin crawl. Likewise, Ezekiel 16 exists because we need to know just how terrible sin really is. But that's not all that Ezekiel 16 is good for. If you look closer, if you do the hard work of trudging through sin's awful, suffocating fog in this passage, you can see light. One day God's wrath on Israel would be satisfied. Verse 42. One day God's righteous jealousy would depart. One day God's anger would be no more. One day Jerusalem's fortunes would be restored. Verse 53. We said last week that God is faithful, even as his people are not. Well, on a related note, even after all of Jerusalem's betrayal, wickedness, and shamelessness, God remains gracious. We see in verse 59. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath and breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded, and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. The Israelites may have forgotten God, but God did not forget them. God will remember his promises to his people. Like when he promised Abraham that his offspring would be a great nation that would bless the whole world. Or when he promised David that a king from his line would reign forever. God will restore their relationship to him. They won't be wayward children forever. And God will atone for their sin. The word atonement is a combination of the words at and one. And that word was invented by William Tyndale when he was translating the New Testament. 
God is reconciling sinners to himself is the idea. In short, God will once again redeem his helpless, hopeless, doomed people left to die in the wilderness. But this time around, they're not doomed because of negligent parents. They're doomed by their own sin. But even with that, God remains gracious. You know, we like talking about grace a lot. And rightfully so. And we don't like talking about sin. But we can only learn to truly appreciate God's grace when we come face to face with sin's ugliness. So much of the joy of a mountaintop view comes from the climb you have to make to get there. And if you didn't have to make that climb, the view might lose some of its luster. It becomes cheapened. Likewise, the light that is God's grace is only amazing when we consider the blackness of the sin that makes God's grace necessary. If we talk about grace until the cows come home, but avoid talking about the sin that makes grace necessary, we end up cheapening it. But what else does this mean for us? How else should we think about Ezekiel 16? How in the world does this horrible chapter of scripture have anything to say to us? Well, I would submit to you that this isn't just Israel's story or Jerusalem's story. Ezekiel 16 is humanity's story. Yours and mine. Adam and Eve were once brought to life by God's grace. But then they thwarted God's kindness by needlessly disobeying the one command he gave them for their good. They took God's blessings and used them for sin. They rebelled and they were judged for it. But before they were expelled from the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were given the hope of redemption, even if it was hard to see. In Genesis 3.15, God says that one day a child of Eve would make the serpent pay for leading God's people astray. The Bible teaches that we follow in Adam and Eve's rebellious footsteps. And we blaze new trails of sin ourselves. Now, our sin may not be identical to those listed in Ezekiel 16. We may not bow down before images, offer child sacrifices to false gods, or foolishly trust in foreign powers when we should trust in God. But make no mistake, our sin doesn't have to be identical to Israel's to be just as ugly. We, too, can forget God. We, too, deserve judgment in and of ourselves. And we, too, desperately need God's grace. Thankfully, God has displayed his grace most definitively, once and for all, 
through his son, Jesus Christ. It's in Christ that God's promises are fulfilled. It's in Christ that our relationship to God is restored. It's in Christ that our sin is atoned for on the cross. He is that new covenant God promised at the end of Ezekiel 16. Humanity may forget God, but God did not forget us. He intervened by sending his son to deal with sin once and for all. And he will intervene again when Jesus returns to consummate that victory. And all of that is true because God is gracious. It's hard to read a passage like Ezekiel 16, one that brings the horrors of sin into such clear, dramatic, and disturbing view. But that's not all that Ezekiel 16 is about. It's also about God's grace. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9, the Apostle Paul makes no bones about sin. He says in verses 9 and 10, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Sin is not just taken seriously in the Old Testament, folks. 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament. But then in verse 11, Paul reminds us of the remedy for those sins. My sins. Your sins. And that remedy is God's grace. He says in verse 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, And by the spirit of our God. And such were some of you. Such were some of us. May we not forget the grace that God has shown us. And may we respond with humility, gratitude, and obedience. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the spirit of our God. One commentator calls the passage that we read today, the gospel according to Ezekiel. The word grace is often defined as God's unmerited favor towards sinners. It's a step up from the word mercy. Mercy is withholding punishment, while grace is both withholding punishment and giving something good, giving something undeserved. Our hearts were sick With sin. And grace was the only remedy. We were as helpless as a newborn baby cast into a field, left for dead. And God was the only one who could help. So thank God that He has and He can graciously save faithless children like us. And he's done it through the life, death, and resurrection of his faithful son, Jesus Christ. So may none of us ever forget 
where we came from, and the grace that God has shown us. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for your kindness and your mercy and, of course, your grace. We say that every week. I think I say that in most prayers. And it's easy to just kind of have it roll off the tongue without thinking too deeply about it. But, Lord, I pray that we would really consider how amazing your grace truly is. I pray that we would not forget the grace that you have shown us. That every single one of us deserved death. Every single one of us deserved judgment. And yet you have saved us. Not because you needed us. Not because you were lacking anything. But purely out of your kindness. Purely out of your generosity. Purely out of your grace. You saved us for yourself. And Lord, I pray that we would remember that day in and day out. I pray we'd remember that as we look ourselves in the mirror. That no matter how long we've believed, no matter how long we've served in the church, no matter how much money we give, whatever it is that we think might give us leverage, remind us that we are beggars in need of bread and that you have shown us grace. And Lord, in that sense, keep us humble. Help us remember to be grateful and not take your sin for granted to the point of becoming lazy or entitled or hard-hearted. And Lord, I also pray that we would remember the grace that you have shown us when we look at other people. It's so easy to thumb our noses at other people, to look down on people, to think we're better than they are. But Lord, remind us that they don't need your grace any less or any more than we do. We don't need your grace any less than they do. Remind us, Lord, that we are all on the same playing field in the big scheme of things. Apart from your help, we are helpless. Apart from your help, we are hopeless. Apart from your help, we are doomed. And so, Lord, help us turn our faces, turn our eyes, turn our hearts, turn our minds to your son, Jesus, by the power of your spirit. Thank you for the grace you've shown us. Lord, thank you for the sin that you've forgiven us. Help us slowly but surely learn to leave that sin behind where it belongs. To be the people you've called us to be, to be the people you've declared us to be. Lord, we love you. Thank you that you are our righteous, generous, gracious Father. Even when we can be wayward children. I pray that we would return to you. Repent of our sin and embrace the reconciliation that you've given us in Christ. We love you, we worship you, we ask this all in Christ's name.